1: This is part one of a three-part interview with Brian D. Palmer about the emergence of Trotskyism in the United States.
0: Welcome to New Books in Historical Materialism. I am your host, Stephen Dozeman. In the spring of 1942, James P. Cannon, the founder of American Trotskyism, gave a series of lectures in New York on the first decade of the movement. The challenges, the setbacks, the accomplishments, and the lessons learned were recounted with Cannon's trademark style that managed to be accessible while also maintaining the revolutionary militancy he was trying to carry on. The lectures would eventually become a book, The History of American Trotskyism, 1928-38, Report of a Participant. In a short editorial note, Joseph Hansen remarked, "'Historians of the future writing the definitive history of American and world Trotskyism will undoubtedly round out Cannon's history with additional material delved from original sources. But while there is no pretension to exhaustive research or extensive documentation in this work, future historians utilizing it as source material will find that they must likewise depend heavily upon it as a guidepost. This little remark has been proven correct by several later books on labor in the Depression, but it now appears almost prophetic with the arrival of Brian D. Palmer's latest work James P. Cannon and the Emergence of Trotskyism, 1928-38. Published as part of the Historical Materialism book series, it starts off right where its sequel, which we have discussed previously, left off, with Cannon and several other comrades expelled from the Communist Party. With hardly a penny to their name, but an urgent political mission, they set about forming an oppositional faction, one that could both challenge the political degeneration emanating from Moscow that was succumbing to Stalinism, while also working to revitalize an American labor movement that was rediscovering its own fighting spirit. Through Cannon and his comrades, Palmer is able to tell a story of class struggle that shows what even a small group can do when political militancy and clarity are brought to life, even in the face of obstacles that appear insurmountable. Clocking in at 1,200 pages, the book is brimming with detail about both the day-to-day minutiae of class struggle in the period, but also spends a fair amount of time giving international and other historical context. Palmer's capacity to wander through vast archives of material is matched by his storytelling abilities, turning a huge mass of information into a highly readable and compelling narrative. While reading it cover to cover will be richly rewarding for those who do, it will also be an excellent resource for those who read its chapters more selectively. Whether looking to learn about the Minneapolis trucker strike of 1934, the Trotskyists' entry into the Socialist Party, or Trotsky's trial in which he defended himself against accusations emanating from Moscow, it deserves to be on the shelf of inero- anyone interested in labor history and radical politics, and anyone who feels the realm of political possibility to be dire. This book itself is not the revolution, but it will provide lessons and inspiration for those who are hoping to bring it about. As a final note before starting, this episode, like the book, is long, almost five hours long. After our last discussion, Brian and I agreed to try to cover the book in detail. And so I set about reading it and putting together a lot more notes than I usually would for one of these episodes. We then finally got together and spent a full day working through it. I say this both to warn listeners that they may have to listen to this episode across a few sittings, and also as a sincere thanks to Brian for all the time he spent not only discussing the text with me, but looking over some of my notes beforehand and offering suggestions and feedback. It was a pleasure to work with him on this, and I hope that the book's length doesn't scare off would be readers, as it really is worth the time. Give us a listen, give him a read, and be reminded that a better world is possible, provided that we fight for it. Now, onto the show. Brian D. Palmer is Professor Emeritus and former Canada Research Chair of Canadian Studies at Trent University. He is a fellow of the Royal Canadian Society, former editor of Labour and has published widely on the history of labor and the revolutionary left. His numerous books include Marxism and Historical Practice, two volumes, Revolutionary Teamsters, Cultures of Darkness, and Descent into Discourse. He is also the co-editor with Paul LeBlanc and Thomas Bias of the three-volume document collection U.S. Trotskyism, 1928-65. Brian Palmer, welcome back to the New Books Network.
1: Well, thanks for having me. Glad to be here.
0: Yeah, so to kick things off, in our last conversation, I asked you why you decided to write about James Cannon when faced with the wide cast of characters across the American left. And you said because he is the red thread of left subjectivity that helps give the narrative some continuity. I'd like to repeat that question, but ask more specifically what writing about Cannon allows you to say about the Depression-era America, because this book is, among other things, a history of the Great Depression. How does writing a biography of James Cannon allow you to show a different side of Depression-era America?
1: Yeah, well, that's a very good question. And I think what what writing about Cannon and the emergence of Trotskyism in the United States in the 1930s does is it opens up uh, a whole new kind of window of insight into, um, the nature of the revolutionary left. Um, because of course he's challenging, uh, the Stalinization of the communist party. Uh, it opens up a new perspective on, uh, um, uh, the nature of the labor movement in this period, uh, and how the left, uh, interacted with that labor movement. Uh, and it opens up, uh, a new perspective on, uh, um, the politics of, uh, interacting with, uh, um, the sort of liberal, uh, response to the Great Depression articulated by the New Deal and, and, and Roosevelt. So there's a whole series of ways in which, uh, a small, uh, but coherent revolutionary left formation, which was led by canon, uh, allows new perspectives on very old, uh, questions of, of significance and importance in the, in the Great Depression.
0: So you wrestle in the introduction with the complex history of histories of communism, with a couple main camps or threads running through it, presenting different ways to wrestle with several key questions, particularly around the nature of the American left in the 20th century. On the one hand, the traditionalist camp tends to emphasize Moscow's ability to control events internationally via political pressures and espionage to the detriment of seeing American leftists as having much agency, while the later revisionist camp emphasizes the local nature of the American left to the detriment of understanding its international context. Could you elaborate on this and cue unfamiliar listeners into this debate and what's at stake in it?
1: Yeah, the, the, the writing on American communism, as you you know, laid out in, your, in, in that introductory comment was really uh, um, a, uh, a set of oppositional historiographies. Um, an older historiography associated with Theodore Draper of which the more uh, contemporary equivalents have been uh, Harvey Clare and John uh, Haynes, uh, really uh, laid out an understanding of American communism as uh, an imp- a foreign import imposed by the Communist International uh, with the Communist Party basically uh, directed uh, by Moscow. Uh, and that uh, eliminated uh, the notion that an, an indigenous American uh, revolutionary tradition uh, really had much of a, a, an impact in a whole series of struggles uh, for industrial unionism, against unemployment, uh, against racism, Uh, etc. So that perspective on American communism, uh, which came out of the Cold War, uh, really uh, sort of laid a foundation of seeing American communism as something alien to the American experience. Um, A new left historiography that came out of the 1960s uh, basically wrote against that tradition, and saw in the struggles of American communists uh, and an inherently American uh, confrontation that tried to uh, take the, the, uh, um, the, uh, the anti-capitalism of communism and apply it directly to struggles in the United States. Um, that historiography tended to see uh, Moscow as really, uh, in some senses, uh, more peripheral. It focused more on local struggles, particular the particular American context. It looked at secondary cadre in the American uh, Communist Party rather than its uh, New York uh, often based leadership, um, and it 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 basically, in some senses, uh, um, focused very much on. Uh, the Americanization of the movement. Now, the problem with both of these uh, approaches really comes down to uh, st- the Stalinization of the party, um, which by the 1930s was uh, to many very evident. Uh, that Stalinization, in some senses, moved uh, the, the the communist uh, international, and its national sections, like the Communist Party in the United States, away from an older principled commitment to world revolution and more and more in line with the Sta- Stalin's program of socialism in one country, defending the gains supposedly of socialism uh, in the Soviet Union, which was becoming by the mid mid 1920s into the 1930s, more and more bureaucratized, more and more a, uh, a repudiation in some senses of the early principles of the revolution of 1917. where Cannon fits in this is, he is in some senses a stark reminder that the American communist tradition could step outside of Stalinization and Moscow control. In other words, the positions taken by the traditionalists like, like Draper have really no way of grappling with a, a person like Cannon who went through the experience of early American communism, learned from the early founders of the Russian revolution, uh, like Lenin, Trotsky, Zinoviev, and then saw firsthand what Stalinization meant in the American party and grappled with what it meant in the international, and moved away from that, rejecting it, embracing Trotsky's critique of sort of the revolution betrayed. In that sense, the kind of new left approach also has no place for canon because it basically skirted the issue of Stalinization, avoided confronting the extent to which Moscow was imposing uh, a whole series of um, sort of backtrackings on the American movement, a whole series of uh, sort of frustrations, difficulties, imposing its control arbitrarily and bureaucratically. So to me, Canon represents uh, a challenge to both historiographic uh, tendencies. He steps outside of uh, their sort of blinkered approach that both of them in different ways uh, uh, entail. Yeah, that gets my introductory questions uh, all
0: out of the way so we can move into the actual history. So. This book picks up right where the last one was ending, with Cannon and a couple key trusted comrades having returned from a 1928 convention in Moscow, where Cannon had experienced something of a political revelation, in which he had to rethink a number of his own political commitments. Would you tell us what had he learned, uh, what had he learned, and what did he see as his task upon returning to the states?
1: Yeah, I think the if I could backtrack just a bit and touch on something, some things that were elaborated on in the first volume over the course of the nineteen twenties, Cannon grew increasingly frustrated with the with the factionalism uh, of the American Communist Party, the way that stalemated uh, its its possibility for interacting uh, with the working class and and extending uh, its its political reach into wider. Uh, segments of, uh, of American society. Um, he grew increasingly frustrated as well with the heavy-handed uh, and dictatorial, arbitrary kind of uh, uh, controls that Moscow and the Comintern were uh, uh, imposing on American communists over the course of the late 1920s. But he had no real way of, of, of figuring what was going on, and he was locked into in some senses, his disillusionment with what was happening in the United States. He said himself he was too focused on the local problems of the U.S. and why communism was not moving forward there and making inroads. He went to the 1928 uh, uh, Congress of the Communist International reluctantly. His own faction in the CP basically twisted his arm to go. While he was there, He came across, and there's many stories, and I cover these in the first volume. He came across either by accident or because the Stalinists inside the Moscow party wanted certain people who they may not have trusted to to come across. he came across Trotsky's uh, um, uh, critique of the Communist International, um, which was being uh, discussed uh, in certain quarters. And what that Critique of the Communist International, which focused on uh, the problems of the of of of, of the uh, of the Comintern's approach to the Chinese Revolution in 1926-27. Uh, it looked at the the problematic approach to the British General Strike in nineteen uh, um, uh, twenty six, and it looked at the problems even in the American Party with uh, uh, the Communist uh, International's emissary, John Pepper's approach to farmer laborism and cross-class radicalism. And all of a sudden Cannon, he he said, the light went on. I saw that the problems in the American party were linked to problems in the Communist International. That in fact, uh, there were a whole series of developments in the realm of policy and practice that suggested that the Communist International was moving away from, uh, again, as I've said, the world revolution approach of Lenin and Trotsky in 1917 to 1921 and embracing more Stalin, the program that Stalin would be articulating of socialism in one country. The notion that you could actually build socialism in one country, that if you defended and spent all of the communist internationals uh, sort of resources and time in, in trying to shore up what was going on in Russia, uh, you would inevitably, Trotsky said, sacrifice movements around the world that were in fact the only way that the Russian revolution itself could survive. It needed the the input of a, a kind of world revolutionary movement. It couldn't sustain itself uh, insular uh, within the Soviet Union. So Cannon learned that. And as he learned that, he also learned in some senses or began to grapple with the fact that any communist movement worth its salt, not only in Russia and internationally, but in places like the United States, needed to actually develop its own approach to uh, uh, the class struggle in its particular setting. It needed to rely on guidance from principled and committed Uh, revolutionaries who'd been tried and tested in steeled battle, as had the early Bolsheviks. But it needed to create those kind of tried and steeled uh, and tested in struggle uh, revolutionary advocates in their own local settings. So there was a combination of an international perspective and what had gone wrong in the communist international and a sense that we needed to turn away from uh, reliance entirely on more bureaucratic and authoritarian elements uh, that Stalinism itself uh, was beginning to encapsulate.
0: In October 1928, Cannon and a few others were put on trial within the American Communist Party, with Jay Lovestone leading the charge. Could you tell us what were the accusations Cannon had directed at him and what was revealed
1: through the proceedings? Well, the accusation was very simple. Uh, He and Ayburn and Shackman, had embraced Trotskyism and Trotskyism was uh, in some senses, by this time of 1928, 29, uh, kind of an evil incarnate within a Stalinized communist international. Um, So uh, the notion uh, of, you know, that that you actually had to look at what Trotsky had written and, and actually think through its implications uh, for the communist movement internationally, was anathema to the leadership of the communist international and to Lovestone. So the the amusing point of the trial is, is that at one point, uh, you know, people were asking Cannon, well, what do you know about China? And he said, well, he, he put forward his view of what had happened in China in, 19, in the mid-1920s and why that was a problem. And One of the people questioning him, a a, a lower level figure, not Lovestone, actually was questioned about going to a bookstore and seeing a book, a communist book on China. And he wouldn't read it because he felt China was associated with Trotskyism. So, this notion that you couldn't read, you couldn't think through difficulties, you couldn't raise questions, critical questions. And of course, communism had been founded internationally and in the United States, as a critical approach to capitalism. Now, the notion that, you know, you were raising criticisms about the communist international was verboten. It was off the table. So the entire trial really centered on, uh, um, you know, whether Cannon had embraced Trotskyism. uh, And uh, um, if he embraced it, uh, then uh, that was heretical and that was sufficient uh, to uh, result in his expulsion and those of his comrades who aligned with him. It was really a, a vetoing of thinking, reading, discussing, debating, all of which had been central to the, you know, to the, to the experience that Com- Cannon and others had gone through in becoming communists in a bastion of capitalism, the United States.
0: Upon expulsion, Cannon, along with Max Shackman and Martin Abern, immediately set to work building an oppositional faction. In addition to reaching out to contacts they had throughout the country who they hoped might be sympathetic to their cause, they also managed to put out a paper, The Militant, within a couple weeks, which included documents of Trotsky himself. What did the first days and weeks of exile look like in terms of trying to distribute ideas, generate discussion and rally support?
1: Well, I think, uh, uh, you know, when Cannon, Abern, and and Shackman were expelled from the Communist Party uh, after this this trial, and it took some time, the trial, it went on and there was a lot of debate and discussion. Uh, Once they'd been expelled and they were walking back to Cannon's apartment in the Lower East Side in New York, uh, you know, Cannon described this as a pretty lonely walk. Uh, They really had no idea, uh, you know, what was going to happen. They knew some people would rally to them, but they were really, as their opponents within the Communist Party called them, they were three generals without an army. Uh, It was a very lonely endeavor. Um, They... They had, uh, um, they had kept mailing lists of the Communist Party through uh, Cannon's, Shackman's, and Abrams' work in the international labor defense. They knew they could be in contact uh, with people across the country. Um, but they focused on putting out the militant, which was their propaganda sheet, which was basically a, a putting forward of their ideas and documents they had written and some writings very limited writings of Trotsky. Uh, And they thought that they would, uh, you know, uh, pitch their notion that the communist international and its American section had gone off the rails uh, to those elements within the communist party that they felt uh, were still the vanguard of uh, revolutionary possibility in the United States. But it was difficult. For the first few weeks um, I think the, the Lovestone Group, which, of course, would later be expelled as well by the Communist Party, uh, by, the, by the Communist International, the Lovestone Group didn't really know how to handle uh, Cannon and company. So they had a bit of leeway in terms of, for instance, selling the militant in front of party headquarters uh, and, and workers in the, Communist, in the Communist Party were actually buying the paper and reading it. Um, but that closed down after a period of time. And uh, Lovestone orchestrated uh, a campaign of violence, which we can talk about later, um, against the communists, against, pardon me, against Cannon uh, and his, his, his comrades. And they, and they And Lovestone and company also introduced more and more a kind of surveying of communist party local units across the country and anyone who had any sympathy with, with Canon and his position uh, would eventually find themselves expelled. Again, we can we can talk about that a bit later. So the first few weeks were lonely, but incredibly productive. Um, after that, it got more and more difficult. But after that, too, people began coming around to Canon joining and in, in, in different ways. And again, we'll, we'll probably address that uh, in later questions.
0: Yeah, picking Uh, that last bit up. In the early days of American Trotskyism, you identify three main phases of recruitment. A first phase of small trusted allies who met in Cannon's apartment for private discussions. A second phase of expulsions that left a number of people without a political home and thus open to recruitment. And finally, a third phase in which various individuals or small groups, often immigrants, found their way to Cannon. Could you talk about these early stages of recruitment and consolidation, and the sort of patchwork faction that Cannon was starting to cobble together?
1: Yeah, um, as we've as we've noted in in the first expulsion, it was Cannon, Shackman, and Abern, and of course Rose Carstner, Cannon's partner, joined immediately. And Cannon had at that point he had smuggled Trotsky's document, this uh, critique of the the Comintern. Uh, that had been circulating at the 1928 uh, Communist International Congress. He had he had uh, uh, smuggled that out of the Soviet Union and had a copy along with um, um, uh, Morris Specter in Canada, who, who he had aligned with. Um, but you know, how do you do you get that document to other people? Uh, you know, even making a copy and getting a stenographer and paying you know, her to do it was difficult. And one copy was actually lost because Shackman turned it over to, uh, um, uh, you know, a a Communist Party member that he thought was sympathetic. And that party member simply then took it to the Lovestone leadership and it, of course, disappeared. But um, Cannon kept uh, the copy that he had, the original copy, under the floorboards in his uh, apartment in, in, in the Lower East Side. And by ones and twos, people came in. Uh, A guy named Bernie Morgenstern, an old, you know, uh, pro-Cannon figure in Philadelphia, you know, made the trip to New York, knocked on his door, said, what's the lowdown, Jim? What's going on? And Cannon said, okay, read this. He sat on on Cannon's bed and read it for, uh, you know, an hour or two. And this is how people got recruited. One by one, Cannon called it a single jack kind of recruitment. And these were mainly people who'd worked very closely with Cannon and Cannon's faction inside the Communist Party uh, in the 1920s. Um, But, you know, by ones and twos, it's difficult to build, uh, you know, a left opposition uh, uh, worthy of the name. In essence, Lovestone and company organized the next phase of recruitment with their heavy-handed and often quite nasty uh, interventions into local communist party uh, um, movements across the country. For instance, in Minneapolis, which became a stronghold of American Trotskyism, and we'll talk about that uh, you know, in a few minutes, uh, the, the, the party members there uh, had no inkling really of what Trotskyism was about. And so when the expulsion of Cannon happened, and when the condemnation of Trotsky, Trotskyism was put forward and put out by Lovestone and company across the country, and everyone was called to kind of stand to attention and denounce this heresy, the people in Minneapolis simply said, well, we don't know what Trotskyism is. We'd like to read some documents. We'd like to think about this. We'd like to see what this fight in the party in which a major figure has just been expelled is all about. Expelled. Those people were expelled. Well, once they're expelled, they gravitate to canon. And this happened, you know, across the country. And so significant groups, not single Jack, but maybe three or four people in Philadelphia or a dozen in Minneapolis come into canon's ranks. And this is growing the movement. And this is uh, uh, sort of broadcasting that there is dissent in the party. There's expulsions. There's people gravitating to this new newspaper, The Militant, and those who are putting it out. And that then announces, in some senses, that there is a left opposition and there is dissidence. And all of a sudden, out of the woodwork come various groupings, often in the the foreign language sections of the Communist Party, with which Cannon had had perhaps not very much contact. Uh, This shows these groups that had been harboring discontents and grievances, often, very, very, very often and most markedly not on a Trotskyist basis, but sometimes on one. And those groups, all of a sudden, then they see the militant, they see people selling it, and they gravitate again to this left opposition formation. So there was a group of Hungarians in New York City. Cannon said, we thought they were a kind of a legion coming to us. There was probably a dozen of them. They had been actually clandestinely kind of nurturing a kind of Trotskyist approach and and had been aware of Trotsky's criticisms there was a group in Boston around Antoinette Conaco who was uh, a, an advocate of birth control in the um, for immigrant women and had been a, a you know a lifelong uh, socialist and communist with spoke many languages uh, had been uh, part of the American revolutionary tradition since the 1890s she came, Towards canon, not on the basis of Trotskyism, which she had no real knowledge of, but on the basis of a of a of a of an opposition to the arbitrary and authoritarian nature of the Common Turn, particularly Zenobia, whom she disliked intensely, uh, and a critique of of, of Stalin. Um, and she had to be she and her group had to be, in some senses, uh, brought in and educated in the fundamentals of trotskyism of which they were largely uh, unaware at the time uh and there were other groups uh there was a there was a a, a figure in Amertag, which was the soviet trade assembly who was probably the first trotskyist in uh um in north america and he uh gravitated towards the canon group he had been in touch with people like max eastman uh and others who at that point were Uh, uh, radicals and had a sympathy for Trotsky. So all of this meant that by the very early 1930s, 1930, 31, there were probably as many as 150 uh, really committed, dedicated uh, left oppositionists, as they were called, who then joined what uh, became the Communist League of America, uh, the first Trotskyist organization uh, in the United States.
0: As they were wandering around trying to get attention, Kennan and his comrades often encountered Stalinists who were unafraid of using force and intimidation to try and silence dissent. Well, this certainly had a chilling effect in some circles. In others, it had the opposite effect, appearing to many workers as politically repulsive and making Trotskyism a bit more sympathetic. Could you talk about these early clashes and the broader effects they had? Yeah,
1: I think the, 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 the point about the thuggery and gangsterism that was organized by the Communist Party, at first by Lovestone and later by uh, Browder and Foster when Lovestone was eventually himself expelled. Um, this was an attempt to silence uh, uh, Trotskyism and its message. It was uh, uh, an attempt to silence through violence. Uh, and, you know, it was really uh, quite uh, stark, this violence. Uh, and what I think needs to be stressed about this, and Shackman certainly stressed this, as did Cannon, that kind of violent suppression, which, which extended into uh, you know uh, beating people up who were selling militants on the street, uh, attacking Hungarian women who sold the militant uh, as prostitutes uh, and trying to bully them, and seize their papers and tear them up. Uh, armed uh, contingents of Communist Party members with blackjacks, furriers, knives, lead pipes, descending on public forums that the Trotskyists held to put up to put out their their uh, their, their message, um, and and uh, you know re- resulting in physical confrontations and melee's and and actual people being hospitalized. Uh, this was foreign to the revolutionary movement. This kind, now, there had been, I'm sure, sectarian clashes and pretty forceful verbal denunciations of people in rival sections of the revolutionary left. That had gone on. But there had never been an attempt to suppress the freedom of speech of the revolutionary left. This was regarded as something that, for instance, took place in the trade unions uh, that, that uh, was orchestrated by uh, bureaucratic officialdoms and reactionary uh, trade union leaders in order to stifle left-wing critics. Um, but it had never been part of the revolutionary movement. And in doing this, uh, the Communist Party and its Stalinist agents uh, really uh, sort of opened a door to gangsterism and thuggery that was quite repugnant. And it was of a piece with the, you know, the silencing and 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 uh, suppressing of open debate, dialogue, uh, and uh, um, uh, and discussion. Now, yes, uh, it did scare some people away, but it also attracted uh, people to uh, like Lovestone's heavy-handed bureaucratic expulsions of a number of uh, members of the Communist Party. The resort to violence created among a thinking contingent of Communist uh, Party members, rank and filers, a sense that something was dramatically wrong in a movement that would resort to this kind of suppression. Um, It uh, created allies for Trotskyism, who weren't necessarily going to join the movement, but who would defend the right to freedom of speech. So, for instance, early figures in the American Civil Liberties Union, like Roger Baldwin, uh, defended the Trotskyist right to freedom of speech as he had defended uh, communist rights of freedom of speech when they had been suppressed by the state, the police, uh, and various vigilante groups. Um, There were, you know... Others who uh, also, um, you know, saw this as uh, as as a anathema and and moved against it. So it all, it served to, uh, um, in, you know, it had a dual kind of impact of encouraging silence among and 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 shoring up the, the Stalinist refusal to debate and discuss among some sectors of the Communist Party, but uh, it also opened the door to more recruitment, uh, to more uh, um, sort of thinking engagement with what was going on in the revolutionary left. And it, uh, not all liberals uh, um, aligned with Trotskyism for sure, but some did, and some took this as uh, um, a further indication of what was, what was wrong with the way the Communist Party was approaching uh, a whole series of, of, of issues.
0: The first chapter closes in the spring of 1929 with the creation of the Communist League of America, a group composed of expelled dissidents who were seeing problems begin to emerge from Communist Party leadership and who were hoping to redirect it to more authentic revolutionary principles. Could you tell us about this faction and what they were hoping to achieve with it?
1: Yeah, well, the Communist League of America... uh... Opposition, as it was called, Um, it wasn't. uh, It it, it was a group that uh, was formed, and as I said earlier, it, 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 and Cannon still regarded, and as did Trotsky, still regarded the Comintern and its uh, its national sections, the communist parties in various countries, as the potential vanguard of revolutionary uh, activism. Uh, Cannon and 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 his allies were committed to the notion that they were an external opposition. They had been expelled. They had been forced out of the Communist Party, but they still insisted that the Communist Party was the rightful place where revolutionaries should gather. It was the rightful place, but it was on the wrong track with Stalinization. And Cannon and his and, and those around him thought that their purpose was to direct their critique of the Communist International towards actual members of the Communist Party. They wanted back into the Communist Party. They wanted to win the Communist Party back to the principles and program of the early Bolsheviks in the 1917 revolution. They wanted to reassert the ideas of Lenin and Trotsky uh, and to uh, basically uh, get the Communist International and the Communist Party Uh, back onto a revolutionary course. So they were not so concerned in the very early years of the Communist League of America with uh, um, engaging in mass work in, for instance, uh, strikes, uh, in trying to recruit workers outside the Communist Party to their ranks, uh, in becoming a mass movement on their own. They were trying to basically reassert the principles of communism and they were trying to win the communist party back to those principles. Um, They wouldn't necessarily of course, refuse entry to someone outside the, the, the CP who came to them and said, well, I agree with you and I want to join. They wouldn't necessarily refuse to be involved in class struggles but their priority was to direct their energies and approach to the actually existing communist party. The problem was that actually existing communist party by 1930, 31 was going to be absolutely closed to that, you know, to anybody approaching them on those terms. Um, so in some senses, uh, the difficulty that, that, that Trotskyism internationally and canon as its, its, its major figure in the United States faced was that they were trying to uh, win back those who, in some senses, were unwinnable. Turning to the second chapter, we enter what
0: you repeatedly call the dog days of American Trotskyism, Before getting into the trials and challenges Cannon and company would face, I think it's worth stepping back and looking at the broader political and economic context, especially since at this point in the story, the Great Depression will kick in, radically altering the political territory. Where was broad political consciousness at this time? And where was the labor movement at the onset of the Depression?
1: Yeah, that's a very important context for these dog days of the early 30s. Um, The labor movement had been on the skids over the course of the 1920s. It had been dealt blow after blow after blow. Uh, It's more where it survived. It survived in a kind of more ossified uh, um, craft union, uh, insular American Federation of Labor business unionism. Uh, The old kind of Sam Gompers approach. Gompers was long gone. William Green was now head of the AFL. But that American labor movement was waging over the course of the late 1920s, fewer and fewer strikes, fewer and fewer uh, political interventions, fewer and fewer uh, campaigns to organize the unorganized. They were basically resting on their skilled uh, labor laurels. The AFL was largely a movement of um, uh, respectable American uh, workers uh, in fairly well-paying but uh, small sectors of the economy. As monopoly capitalism kicked in and new industrial uh, sectors in auto, steel, electrical, etc., cetera, um, came into being, the unskilled and semi-skilled workers in those industries were largely unorganized. Um, then you, not only was, had that happened, but then you had the Great Depression kick in. And from ni- late 1929 into 1930, 31, 32, the labor movement and resistance really ground to a halt. There was very little organizing, very little in the way of strikes going on, uh, very little uh, um, in the mass movement of the American working class. Um, So the situation was quite bad, and it would not be really until 1933, 34, when there was a slight upturn in the economy and when workers had been suffering through almost 5 years of acute depression that they that the workers movement actually began to in some senses reemerge from the doldrums of the, of the of the of the first really destructive years of the depression you factor all of that in to the politics that Cannon was trying to put forward and the communist party's shifting approach and it really did create a situation in which Trotskyism's trotskyists were marginalized so for instance one of the critiques that the trotskyists in 1928 when they first emerged were raising was that the communist party had been failed to leading failed to lead the struggles of the working class in in in, in sort of militant combative ways uh They also said, you know, we need to fight capitalism, uh, you know, in a a serious way. Stalin, once he had dispensed with Bukharin and in the American Party with Lovestone, pushed more and more a left adventurist approach that said that, you know, the, the Communist International is the only fighting force that can defeat capitalism. Capitalism is going into a you know a, a, a death the death rows. Uh, it will face uh, in 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 you know in the next years uh, acute crises. Uh, we need to be leading the struggle, and so communists you know adopted an ultra left, uh, ultra sectarian, exceedingly militant stand, and the Trotskyists are there with their critique as the communists are saying, you know, blood will flow in the streets, we need to fight. The more militant workers outside the communist party found it very difficult to kind of, you know, see what the Trotskyists were really about. Uh, And the communists seemed to be the most militant class struggle leaders of the time. And so they would gravitate towards them. And again, the Trotskyists were orienting not to the mass workers who might be radicalized by the by the, by the collapse of the, of the Depression, but to the Communist Party members. Uh, so all of this meant that it was very difficult for the Trotskyists after their initial recruitment and after the enthusiasm of starting a newspaper, translating some of Trotsky's works and, and, and putting them out to a public, uh, winning uh, people to their position, fighting, uh, 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 you know, c- Communist Party thuggery, etc. It seemed that the, the Trotskyist movement, by the very early thirties and these dog days, had stalled. It was basically treading water. Recruitment had, had you know, fallen off. The communists were now leading. The few strikes that happened were often led by communists because they were setting up their own almost red paper unions to in in this third period of you know ultra radical uh, um, stand. So it was a very difficult time. Uh, movements, the movement seemed to have stalled, and in that kind of situation, that's when you know a small movement that appears not to be making headway, all kinds of personalized, uh, uh, you know, uh, antagonisms, personalized criticisms come to the fore when the political criticisms against the Communist Party appear to be falling on deaf ears and not really. Uh, eliciting the response that they had wanted.
0: Yeah, so with all that background on both the depression in Moscow, um, we can go to the newly formed CLA, which, as you were just alluding to, in its first days was an exciting movement, but also more or less destitute, living essentially paycheck to paycheck. Uh, Could you tell us what was the state of the group in these early days after the initial recruitment phases?
1: Yeah, I think if they lived paycheck to paycheck, it probably would have been seen as a, a very positive and good thing for them. The fact was most of these uh, of, of, of the people who came into the CLA uh, and the leadership level, their paychecks had been paid by the Communist International and the Communist Party in the USA. Um, they were professional revolutionaries. Cannon had, and Rose Karstner both had been full-time professional Revolutionaries working for the communist movement in the twenties, they had no paycheck, uh, so uh, they had to basically scrounge to make ends meet. Uh, Cannon actually went to work uh, in the uh, um, works uh, in the in in the, in the Roosevelt uh, sponsored Works Administration for a while in the New Deal. Um, they had no money; they could not put enough money together to actually keep the paper going and keep the headquarters going. Um, There, the, the, the ranks of their movement that might have jobs often lost their jobs or were in fairly dire straits. Um, So the early years of the uh, Communist League of America were years of impoverished uh, uh, miseration of scraping and scrounging, bouncing checks. Uh, to try to you know pay the printer bouncing checks to to try to pay the rent uh, they had a whole system worked out uh, where the rent on the headquarters which would often be in arrears would be paid by people who had a taking their rent money from their apartments and knowing that landlords wouldn't would give them a couple of weeks or a month's leeway putting that uh, into paying the rent and then trying to scraped together enough to rent the, the apartments. It really was a destitute movement. Um, and, uh, they put all of their energies into trying to create a publication program to get some of the basic pamphlet kind of writings of Trotsky out, uh, in English so that they could, uh, get the ideas of this dissident, uh, communist left opposition movement before, uh, workers in the Communist Party and and others who were interested. And very tough times that, I should say, weighed on people in different ways. Rose Karstner, Cannon's partner, uh, had what I'm convinced is a a kind of mental breakdown and was bedridden for months. uh, And it took some time for her to be sort of reintegrate herself in the movement. Cannon himself uh, suffered through clear... Uh, you know, periods of depression, often drank too much to avoid uh, confronting the, the, the sort of political uh, difficulties, and for a time, uh, went into uh, a bit of a, of a personal downturn in which he was uh, often seen to be uh, um, not uh, living up to his responsibilities in, in, in the revolutionary movement as a leader, as the key leader.
0: Yeah, picking right up on that. So against this backdrop of economic depression in this small isolated party, you were just alluding to Cannon also experiencing some profoundly difficult personal issues at this time. There was the death of his ex-wife Lista, Rose Karzner's health taking a turn for the worse, type purse strings, and personal depression all ailed Cannon at this time. In the face of this, Specter, Shackman, and Abern had no shortage of complaints and criticisms criticisms of him at the time, and there was often a blurring of personal and political elements to some of the discussions that ensued. Could you tell us about some of these internal social dynamics and the discussions that were happening at the time?
1: Yeah, it, it... It uh, In these dog days, uh, the, the younger group, uh, who were a few years younger than Cannon and had been kind of youth recruit, recruits to, communi- to, to communism and to his faction in, in, in the CP in the 1920s, um, they began in the dog days to uh, push uh, a, crit- a critique of Cannon and a kind of upgrading of their own status in the movement as leaders. They were, of course, leaders, but they began, I think, chafing uh, at being held back by the fact that canon, as the the ultimate authority uh, in the movement uh, seemed to be uh, failing them. They wanted to push for a more open uh, mass uh, activity, uh, in the Communist League of America. They, weren't, they were less inclined than Cannon and Trotsky internationally to continue the orientation uh, towards uh, the Communist Party. Um, they uh, tended to uh, be more plugged into international uh, issues and development, Schachman in particular, and Glotzer, uh, um, Albert Glotzer, who was part of the, this, this critique, uh, along with Spector, Morris Spector and Martin Abram, um, they all found Cannon wanting in these years. And there was some basis for their critique. Even an old time ally of Cannons like Arnie Swabak was disappointed that Cannon wasn't fulfilling his responsibilities more. But it was a real exaggeration to, 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 to say that he had basically fallen entirely uh, off the, the kind of leadership platform. He was writing for the press. He was conducting a lot of correspondence. He was dealing with immense difficulties, and his circumstances were different than his younger colleagues. He and Rose Carstner for instance, had uh, among them uh, three children to look after. Uh, um, uh, they uh, they did not have uh, wives like Shackman who were working and providing uh um you know a, a family a domestic uh income and uh so these these difficulties uh really uh they were political but they were also pr- incredibly personal and they took a really nasty political turn in terms of internal documents written um that you know castigating canon um and uh, there was also a, a, a sense that his strengths as a, as a leader that came out of the American working class movement that was a, embedded in the IWW, uh, more and more Shackman, Specter, uh, and Glotzer saw this as a limitation and that what was needed was the, the, the international kind of connections. And both Glotzer and Shackman made trips to Uh, Europe, to see Trotsky uh, in Turkey uh, and elsewhere. Um, The problem was that, you know, Cannon, uh, while he was in, you know, a fairly bad state in the early 30s, he never relinquished the notion that, you know, of of his own revolutionary politics. And he did bounce back, and he did need once once he saw chances for mobilization and movement, he did very much get back in the swing of things very quickly. Very quickly, and he had a far more uh, um, resolute and uh, I think realistic approach to revolutionary politics, and a far more uh, far more along with Trotsky uh, a commitment to the principles. Uh, that were required to sustain a revolutionary movement. Shackman, for instance, uh, displayed less and less of that. Uh, And eventually Trotsky came to see him as too journalistic, too chummy with people, too uh, incapable of sort of making the hard uh, decisions that a revolutionary leftist necessarily had to make when confronting uh, uh, challenges Uh, to the left in the workers' movement and in in the international uh, sort of revolutionary currents. Um, So the difficulties of these dog days did reveal a kind of personalized divide that would get worked out uh, through the clarifications of political practice and political policies. But it took some time, and it took a revival of really... Uh, the left-wing movement in the United States in general and in Trotskyism in particular around 1933 to 34 to overcome these difficulties of the dog days.
0: One figure you spend some time on in this chapter on the early, in the early days of the CLA was Albert Weisbord, who Cannon knew and respected as a talented organizer and tried to bring him in Although this brought out certain tensions and problems. Well, Weisbord was a talented organizer. He was unassimilated to the political program the CLA was trying to develop, and he preferred to maintain a certain level of independence. Could you tell us about what happened with Weisbord and what it revealed about the importance of maintaining adherence to a political program?
1: Now, Wiseboard had sort of uh, burst on the scene in 1926 as a communist, young Communist Party organizer in Passaic, New Jersey, where he was a key leader and a vibrant and robust uh, um, figure in the Passaic uh, textile strike of that year. Um, now, there were a whole series of problems with how the Communist Party related to Wiseboard, and they, in some senses hung him out to dry because he was he was actually uh, inevitably promoting uh, in 1926 a uh, um, uh, a critique of the established AFL unions in that sector. And at that point in time, unlike in the early 30s, the Communist Party had thought that, you know, where communists needed to be was inside the mainstream unions rather than outside of them. Um, Weisbord, uh, by 1929, uh, was out of the Communist Party. And into the early 30s, uh, he did see uh, the Trotskyists in the Communist League of America as a, uh, uh, a pole of attraction that he could work himself into. Um, Weisbord's problem was that he was always more of a freelance uh, than a than a, than a than than an actual party organizer uh on the on the one hand that was his inclination on the other his strength in Passaic was in part because of the fact that he was linked to the communist party and he did have communist party organizers and others whom he could um, deploy to kind of lead uh, this uh, uh, immense uprising and, and quite vibrant class struggle. Um, and that was always the problem with Weisbord. He was uh, uh, mercurial. Uh, he was talented, um, but he could, where he, where he, he, he could lead. But he led best when he had a party at his back. But he could never actually retain his own adherence in some senses to that party. He thought he could come into the uh, Communist League of America and turn it around. Uh, He connected with Trotsky, and Trotsky saw him as having some strengths as an organizer and a leader. Um, But when he made his way into some kind of connection to the Communist League of America, and in '33, uh, '34, and basically wanted to be uh, to join, uh, Cannon, uh, Shackman, and others and this was a part of them coming, of Cannon and Shackman coming back together, saw that Wiseboard was simply unassimilated, as you say, to the the program of the Trotskyists. He simply didn't know enough about international questions. He didn't have enough of an orientation towards the international issues that Trotskyists thought were of vital importance. And he thought that mass work, mass work, mass work was always the answer. Um, So there was a kind of, period in which uh you know wiseboard and he had some followers around him flirted with joining the CLA and the CLA recognizing that he had talents uh engaged in discussions and common activity with him but it soon turned out that this kind of common activity was never going to pan out and in fact that helped bring, along with many other factors that we'll talk about, that helped bring Cannon, Shackman, Specter, uh, and Glotzer, Abern back together uh, in thirty-three, thirty-four. Um And there were a series of other things that also helped to bring that fusion of these uh, people who had come apart during the dog days back into a, a kind of fighting uh, cohort. So Wiseboard really... Uh, um, he ended up, uh, you know, breaking decisively eventually from the Communist League of America. There was uh, some ugliness of uh, uh, clashes, physical clashes, actually, with uh, Communist League of America uh, members. Um, and uh, Trotsky, in the end, who would have, I think, liked to have seen Weisbord integrated, came to appreciate the fact that Canon, Recognized that he was simply not material that could be uh, sort of brought into a Trotskyist organization, and from that point on, Wiseboard, uh, the the sort of freelance Wiseboard, dabbled in left wing politics, tried to set up his own organization, the Class Struggle League of America, um, always presenting himself as to the left of uh, to the to the left of uh, Cannon and others. Uh, he eventually sort of uh, um, petered out in the revolutionary movement and uh, played no significant role after the late nineteen late 1930s uh, in the revolutionary left.
0: As we transition into the 1930s, we see some factions within the CLA starting to solidify, something that worried Cannon given his experiences in the 1920s. Well, he was not above or exempt from factional infighting, often driven more by petty personal grievances, he did make a serious attempt in 1932 to force political questions to the forefront so that debates would have to take the form of political debates rather than personal squabbles. Could you explain this attempt Cannon was making at reorienting the party's internal dynamics?
1: Yeah, he had... Learned a lot about factionalism in the Communist Party of the 1920s, and he tried to set up a faction uh, against factionalism uh, in that period. Um, As he was confronting a factionalism uh, in the Communist League of America that reached its height in 1932, that was unduly personalized and uh, unnecessarily lacking. In uh, sort of political direction, um, uh, you know, the, the Shackman, the Shackman, Abern Specter Glotzer critique of canon in the 30s was largely a critique of quote the canon regime. Uh, the regime was was you know too much one man management, too much uh, bureaucratic, and of course, with people who had you know rejected Stalinism, this had a certain salience and it resonated. Perhaps with with some people in the CLA rank and file members, um, Cannon wanted to put it to put the issues more and more on a political plane and struggled to do that. Um, he also was incre- was was uh, constantly being, in some senses, educated by Trotsky from afar. He'd never met Trotsky at this point, point. and Trotsky kept saying to him, uh, "Look." Um, you have the majority of the CLA behind you. Uh, you have, I believe, the better political perspective, including on international questions, where Trotsky increasingly came to find uh, Shackman kind of falling down, relying more on chummy personal relations rather than, uh, you know, the politically uh, sort of programmatic firmness that Trotsky wanted to inculcate into the european movement that was so often lacking there he began to trust canon more and to see more and more problems in how shackman who'd spent some time in europe uh, and was supposed to you know be following trotsky's uh, guidance and 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 approach to questions was often cutting corners and, and you know basically failing to follow through on uh, the, the, the directions that Trotsky thought were necessary. And that I should say were necessary. It's, it's not that Trotsky was simply arbitrarily imposing on Shackman a, a kind of dictatorial regime. It wasn't like that at all. Um, it was thought through and, and Shackman would agree to it and then he would go into Germany or France and not follow through. Um, Trotsky grew very uh, uh, wary of this. But he constantly impressed upon Canon the necessity in these uh, factional battles to let the politics of the factionalism run its course, to let the, 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 the uh, differences be aired out and to be hammered out on a political basis. And in this Trotsky always pressed upon Cannon the need to to sort of shed Cannon's old practices from the Communist Party, which led to a certain impatience in settling these kind of questions. And Trotsky said, as the leader of the majority, you owe the minority more leeway than they are willing to give you. And you have to kind of suffer through the fact that you might be personally attacked, but to counter that, basically give them enough political rope to hang themselves, which is ultimately what Cannon did, and it's why Shackman, Specter, Glotzer, and Abrahm had to, in many ways, retreat from the positions that they began that they had laid out in you know in 1932. And, as they, and as, they, as they did this, and as the politics came to the fore, and as new developments pushed the Trotskyists more and more into open engagement with various struggles in, in the mid-1930s, there would be a sort of rebuilding of the old Shackman Cannon alliance that had been so fruitful uh, in the Communist Party in the 1920s. And that had been the foundation upon which, you know, Canon and those around him left uh, the Communist Party and were expelled in 1929.